Hey, Bullseye listeners, it is Jesse. So uh, we got the unfortunate news this week that Terry Jones passed away. Uh, Obviously, like any other self-respecting comedy nerd, uh, I grew up obsessed with Monty Python. And uh, I also grew up obsessed with a a book that Terry Jones wrote called Fairy Tales, which is beautiful and still in print. Um, And so for that reason, when I had the opportunity to interview Terry Jones, I was genuinely terrified. <laughs> like I, when people ask me sometimes if I'm if I'm nervous about doing interviews, I say no, and I that's generally true. Like unless I haven't had the time I'd like to prepare or something like that, I generally feel fine about my interviews. You know, people are people, and so forth. Um, but I vividly remember being in my apartment in Koreatown, where I from from which I recorded this interview, and looking at my finger as I was dialing the phone and realizing that it was actually literally shaking. (laughs) Anyway, uh, this conversation was one of the things that convinced me that I needn't be nervous about interviews because uh, Terry Jones was such uh, brilliant and hilarious, but ultimately uh, lovely and kind man as well. It was so nice of him to do this interview on, on my show when... Very few people listen to my show, and uh, it is one of the greatest highlights of my career. So um, in uh, in memory of a great artist and, and a kind man, my conversation from almost 14 years ago, 2006. You're listening to The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. My guest on the program, Terry Jones, is a founding member of Monty Python's Flying Circus, as well as an author, a film writer, a director, and right now you're actually working on um, re-editing the soundtrack for uh, Eric the Viking, which was a film you yeah, made in the mid-80s. It's a film I made about 16 years ago called Eric the Viking, um, and I was never really quite pleased with it, um, with the edit and the way, uh, the way it was. And um, Normally with films, I do, I, I, and all the Python movies, I've always edited hands-on myself, and for some reason this one I just... Uh, uh, I just sort of let the editor get on with it, and I stepped back, and it all seemed to be going pretty well. And it was only about um, ten days, uh, a week before, two weeks before we were due to open in London, that I actually sat down with it, and I suddenly realised there was an awful lot I could take out. Um, and so we man- I managed to get about ten minutes out of it. But um, by that time, the Amer- in America, they'd already printed 250 copies of the long version, so that's what went out over there. And then uh, just before Christmas, Sony said they were going to re-release it on a DVD, and they were going to call it the Director's Cut. And I said, hey, wait a minute, you can't call it the Director's Cut, because um, well, it isn't my cut. The, uh, even though it's a shorter version, it's, uh, it's, uh, I can still do an awful lot more to it. So I've had a great thrill of uh, re-editing it, and uh, we're now just doing the sound. Um, and I've been, so it's a triple thrill, because I've been meaning to do it for 16 years, I've been working with the best editor I've ever worked with, and he's my son. <laughs> now, what we're going to do, uh, what we're calling it, we're, we're not going to call it the director's cut. We're going to call it the director's son's cut. <laughs> because really, he's, sort of, he's, he's changed the scene order and, uh, and sharpened it up no end. It really looks really good now. For a lot of people, I know I worked with my father for a little while, and it was a total disaster, I have to say. <laughs> well, I don't know. Bill and I get on very well, so <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> It seems like it's the it's the rather rare director's cut that might be sh- shorter than the original. Uh, yeah, it's quite a bit shorter. In fact, I mean, uh, my original cut. I mean, my cut was ten minutes shorter than the uh, 
than my editor's cut. Um, and this is now another um, like 25 minutes shorter than the original film. So uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus is coming back to television, or at least to uh, non-cable to broadcast television here in the United States, and it's going to be distributed in April by PBS for the first time, although it was when it originally ran on U.S. television, it was run on uh, primarily on PBS stations. Yeah. Um, this is like 30 years later now. And does it ever feel totally um, normal that this, that this creation that you participated in 30 years ago has this um, amazing staying power? Well, yes, it does, it does make life seem very short, you know. <laughs> but it's, 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 it's surprising. I mean, I must say, I, never, I think we all thought when we were making the, film, the, the TV shows, we, I think we all thought, well, we're going to do the funniest thing around at the moment, but we didn't expect um, people to be still looking at it in 30 years' time. And in fact, we didn't think it would be technically possible because when we actually started uh, in 69, the first shows, um, you really couldn't... Um, there was no home video machines. So, you you know, we didn't expect to, uh, that people would be able to watch at-will programs. And we were very lucky to actually... Um, get it because they nearly the BBC nearly wiped the programs. In fact, if it if it hadn't been been for I mean, what happened was in those days they after a, a couple of years they would automatically wipe comedy programs. Uh, that means you know erase them. Um, and the our editor in the BBC phoned me up and said, "Hey, they're going to they're going to um, erase the Python the first series of Python in a month's time." So we smuggled the tapes out of the BBC and recorded them onto the only domestic uh, uh, version, uh, video that was just coming onto the market. It was a Philips thing, and it was a very it was called a VCR. You couldn't play them now. Um, and for a long time, I thought those were going to be the only evidence of these shows, and they were sitting in my cellar. But then, thanks to you chaps in the States, um, the BBC suddenly changed its mind because they started selling the shows to uh, to America. So. Uh, we were we were saved. <laughs> what place did you imagine uh, Python having in the you know the comedy firmament when you first when it was first created? I mean, what was your what was your goal with it then? Well, I think we uh, the goal was just do something funny, really. We just thought we could do the do, do uh, the funniest stuff and and also try and do something that was uh, different to what had gone before and had a different uh, a different shape. And uh, and I think I was very concerned to break up the. Uh, uh, the, the kind of the formats of television comedy. In those days, you know, you'd either have a half-hour comedy, a situation comedy, or else you'd have sketches, and they'd be sort of have beginnings, middles, and ends. Or you'd have crickets, which would be sort of 30 seconds of the one joke. Um, and so we were trying to break that up a bit. One of the interesting things about uh, the Python television series was the way that all of the sketches were linked together, which, which is not um, typical in television sketch comedy. And you mentioned the not having beginnings, middles, and ends. I think those those links kind of get you out of the requirement of always having to have beginnings, middles, and ends, and particularly ends, which can be quite difficult in sketch comedy. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, it imposes a whole other uh, it imposes a whole other requirement. I know when I, I interviewed uh, Bob Odenkirk, who created the uh, sketch comedy series Mr. Show, and they decided to do th that very same thing with links between sketches. And he told me that about halfway through the first season they realized what a horrible mistake that was because they spent about as much time trying to think of links between sketches as they did actually writing comedy. Yeah. Well, 
because we were lucky. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, the idea of, of doing having that show with a, that flowed like that um, really uh, came out of uh, uh, <clears throat> an animation that Terry Gilliam had done for a TV show that Mike Palin, Eric Idle, and I were doing with Terry Gilliam um, called "Do Not Adjust Your Set." It was a children's show, and Terry had done this. Um, he said, I've done this uh, animation, it's sort of chain of consciousness, and it doesn't really mean anything, it just, can go, just goes from one thing to another. And uh, I was thinking, when we were trying to think about what shape the show would be, I suddenly remembered Terry's elephant cartoon, it was called Elephants. And I thought, well, you could do that throughout the whole show. So, of course, we were lucky in having Terry there to actually do links for us. And, uh, and it, 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 we, I mean, links were pretty easy for us, actually. <laughs> How did you? I mean, how did you sell this whole idea? I mean, how did you convince convince the the powers that be that this? You know, I mean, it's a very <laughs> odd television show. Let's face it. <laughs> well, I think it'd be very difficult to do that now. I have to say, um, but in those days, the BBC was a kind of totally different sort of organisation. Um, it wasn't uh, interested in uh, you know how much money it could make and how big the audience was going to be. I mean, it was concerned that size, audience size, but it trusted. Um, it was a much more anarchic organization. It trusted uh, it's, it's the producers. You know, the producers were the top dogs. They'd been selected, they'd been trained, and the BBC, the people running the programming, trusted the producers. And um, I have to say, we they wanted to do something with John Cleese, and um, John wanted to work with uh, Mike and me, and um, we went along to a, a meeting of the, the program planners kind of thing, and there were all these guys in suits sitting around the table, and they said, well, you know, what's, the, what's this program going to be about? And we sort of said, well, we don't really know. And they said, no. And, well, it's going to have music in it. And we said, well, we don't know. And they said, well, who's it going to be aimed at? And we said, well, we don't know. And they said, well, what's it going to be called? And we said, well, we don't know. So they all looked at each other and all went, oh, dear, dear, dear. Well, look, we can only give you 13 shows, you know. <laughs> I don't think I can't see that happening nowadays. <laughs> Do you think that uh, an idea of w- what the show was, I mean, above and beyond s- simply funny, e- evolved during the process of making it? Do you think that it it has a certain uh, idea or a certain aesthetic that binds it together? Uh, well, I think it's got the aesthetic in in terms of just the sort of the the sum total of the six of us and our comic sensibility, I guess. So I suppose that kind of holds it together. Um, but I don't know. We, I mean, at the time, we were just trying to make every every show totally unpredictable. Um, so the fact that you know the word Pythonic has now entered the, I think it's in the Oxford English Dictionary now, <laughs> um, means that we totally failed. You know, we were we were trying to surprise everybody every week, but um, but obviously we uh, we didn't <laughs> succeed. <laughs> You're listening to The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. My guest is Terry Jones, uh, an author, writer, director, and a founding member of Monty Python. Now, Terry, you um, you co-directed with Terry Gilliam uh, the Holy Grail film, and you directed the uh, two Python films that came after that. Yeah. Um, these all these all came out after the um, initial run of the of the series. What what led you into the film arena? And I know and now for something com- completely different, which was a, a kind of an omnibus of sketches film had come out during the series. But why why did you go into features? Well, I, I personally, I've never really liked television. Uh, <laughs> I always wanted to get into films and do films. Uh, um, but why, why completely why, different was a bit, I thought was a bit disappointing because it was just the TV sketches. And um, I must say, I was very keen to do a film. And... Uh, 
Um, and after that, I think enough something completely different didn't really do much business. Um, so John wasn't terribly keen, and sort of had to be cajoled into the idea of doing the uh, Holy Grail, uh, of doing Holy Grail. Um, but uh, and then it was very uncomfortable and unpleasant doing it. But then once we'd uh, done it, and then that was successful um, and made money, then it became a bit easier to persuade the others to to uh, do Life of Brian. <laughs> But it was really film is what I've always I've always wanted to do. Was that because of um, just kind of a general snobbishness, or was that because there were specific things about film that that you could do, um, or specific specific qualities uh, of film that you could utilize that you couldn't do on television? Well, I think a I think basically it's the big screen. I I, I just love the big screen, um, and I've never I've always found a television screen a bit too containing a bit too cramped um but also i think there is the fact that you can actually uh, spend more time in a feature film you know you can actually do things and perfect things and try and make things work um which you don't have time on television i mean you know the, the demands of television are such that you're churning out material um and uh, although we did take time on the on the python shows um I mean, uh, when we were editing the shows, I mean, my uh, Ian McNaughton, who was the director, um, would uh, he'd, he'd sort of think, well, we could get away with two two hours of editing, and uh, I'd turn up in the morning, we'd spend the entire day editing, <laughs> uh, uh, because we, you know you can improve things so much. Uh, actually, talking about editing, the um, I mean, the even then, even spending a whole day editing the show wasn't enough, and. Um, when we came to do these uh, the personal best of Python, we've done these DVDs, which I think are going out on PBS, um, which are our kind of personal pick. And uh, it was a great opportunity to uh, to re-edit the actual TV shows. And um, uh, things like, uh, in, in my choice, um, there's one about the, um, the the killer joke. It's a joke that's so funny that it's... Uh, People die laughing, and uh, and so it gets used as a weapon in the war. In the war, um, that last it was nine and a half minutes when it went out on television, um, and I was able to get it down to six minutes. In other words, I cut out three and a half minutes uh, without losing a single joke. And it's it's now much more how I imagined it when we wrote it. I read something very interesting um, in an interview that you did uh, shortly after the premiere of uh, Spamalot, which was the Broadway musical that um, Eric Idle uh, adapted from uh, Holy Grail, which was that, as wonderful as it was, one of the things that, that you seem to think that it, it lost um, from the film was the kind of darkness and, and grotesquerie. Um, which, of course, isn't, you know, it's pretty hard to put grotesquery on the Broadway stage. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about how um, this Middle Ages setting for Holy Grail and this kind of dark, death-filled world was conducive for making jokes. <laughs> well, you know, our original uh, um, script for Holy Grail, um, half of it was set in the Middle Ages, half of it was set in the modern day. And it, it sort of banged backwards and forwards. Um but it just happened that I was sort of uh, working on a book on Chaucer at the time, and uh, um, I kind of was pretty keen on setting it in the Middle Ages. And so, uh, and to my surprise, everybody agreed to go along with that. Um, so, you know, I, 
you know, any setting is going to be uh, is going to be conducive to making jokes. You know, it's just. Um, and, and, but the great thing is try and create a, a real environment that uh, you can then do silly things in. Um, both Holy Grail and Life of Brian are very much period pieces, and very much come from these kind of uh, big, important cultural myths, like really capital letter M central myths to Western culture. Why choose those two like really huge topics uh, first time out for a for a feature film from a series that had been you know a series of sketches that were you know maybe like about class but you know pretty slight. <laughs> well, I think it's the same reason really. It's easier to do something within the context uh, that that looks serious and that people know about already. Um, it gives you sort of the carte blanche to do. Uh, against that world that everybody recognizes. So I think it's the same thing, really, as doing silly things with um, men in bowler hats and moustaches. Um, uh, you, you, you just create a, a world that people recognize and accept as being a realish world uh, or a real world, and, and then you can do silly things in it. Um, and I think that's what we were doing. And I don't think in either case were we particularly... Um, parodying the uh, the styles I mean, of you know like uh, we don't think we were parodying the Arthurian legends. I think we were actually taking the Arthurian legends in the Holy Grail um, and actually enjoying doing silly things within the terms of reference of those legends, if, and which is sort of slightly different from actually making fun of those kind of films. You're listening to The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne, America's Radio Sweetheart. My guest on the program is, um, is Terry Jones. So you, you, were actually, you were actually writing um, your first book, which is uh, Chaucer's Night, at the same time that you were making uh, Holy Grail, or at least preparing to make Holy Grail. What was it, what was it about that Middle Ages world that um, got you excited to do, to do comedy in that world? Originally, it was uh, that it was the boring bits of Chaucer that got me interested, <laughs> um, because you mean I doesn't that mean Chaucer, Chaucer, who writes such funny stuff in some places, would have written these very boring, dull pieces, um, which is what we were being told he did. <clears throat> so I was trying to explain these thirty lines about the knight in the prologue to the Canterbury Tales. Um, and trying to work out what he was actually talking about. And in order to try and find out what he was talking about, I had to start reading about the time and trying to find out a bit more. And uh, to my utter amazement, I found myself getting sort of dragged into sort of late 14th century military history, which is not something I thought I would be interested in. Um, but then, you know, you find that it's, uh, it, it's history is vital. It's like you see the same people going on. Going on. The context is different, of course, but the same people taking power, um, seizing power, holding on to power, and using the same techniques um, that people are using today. And that's, that's really, in a way, how it made me become more political. Um, do you think? Do you think that um, any of your any of your comedy was was political? Um, it wasn't really. No, it was always kind of. It kind of always shied away from uh, politics, it, and it, it's more kind of about you know sort of people and you know human foibles. I think so. If it's if it's satirical in any way, it's satirical in the old sense of being sort of sat out on mankind rather than on uh, any, any individuals nowadays in party politics. 
I think maybe um, because you're maybe because you're British and maybe because you ran on PBS, um, maybe because of uh, glancing references to literature and, and philosophy. Uh, Monty Python in the United States has a reputation as being very intellectual humor, um, which I don't know. Personally, I, I don't know if I've ever really bought into that. But um, how do you feel about that, about having well, that reputation? Well, I think it was a bit of a, a blind that we were putting up, really, because we know, cause it mentions Kierkegaard or something like that. But basically, the jokes are really pretty stupid, and, uh, and uh, it's pretty silly stuff. Uh, but again, it's like using intellectual um, furniture, just like using the Arthurian legends or men in bowler hats. You, you know, you take something that looks very straight, and then it's easier to do silly things within, within that context. Um, but I certainly think we never thought about, oh, well, people never uh, never heard, heard of uh, Hob, Thomas Hobbes or, or, or René Descartes. Um, so we, uh, we just sort of assumed uh, that everybody would know about what we're talking about. And if they didn't, well, too bad. After having had, you know, the popularity of Python stay at a, a relatively continuous level for the last 30 years or so, maybe even growing. Do you get a feeling for, for what, kind of, what kind of people uh, uh, really appreciate the, the humor that you did? Um, no, I mean, I, I, I didn't know really at all. I mean, we certainly found that we appealed more to men. I mean, in this country, we appealed more to men than to, uh, to women. Um, and... Uh, so we never really got groupies when we, when we were going around <laughs> doing the tour, tours. That must have um, been a disappointment. Yes, I know. It was a real... <laughs> um, it's also rather, you know, sort of young, spotty men in anoraks, really. <laughs> um, which wasn't more than my taste at all. Um, so, uh, but it's, uh, I don't know, it's, but I mean, the, the, the one thing was, it was always the first reactions we really got um, when the shows first went out on BBC, I mean, for about four weeks, we, we just seemed to be doing the show in limbo. Nobody, we had an audience in the studio, but apart from that, we weren't getting any reactions at all. We didn't know whether people were liking it or what. And then we started getting letters in from, the, uh, from, from kids at school and things like that, and the school kids that really, you know, started with the first fans of the show. When was the show running at the time? Um, it was, it went out about... I think it was generally about half nine, uh, ten o'clock, something like that. On B, uh, um, <clears throat> I think it was BBC One actually. Everybody, everybody thinks it was BBC Two, but I think it was. A, it, it may have been half ten on BBC One, something like that. And uh, usually, I think it was a Thursday or Friday night thing. Um, can can we do another five minutes or so? Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Yeah, then oh god, yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so sort of involved in doing this. Uh, we're redubbing at the moment. We just got the. Uh, we're just putting new noises on and uh, under the film, and it's uh, getting very exciting. It's, 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 <laughs> the film is quite different. It's uh, really interesting. It's funny to think of the idea of uh, adding adding in sound elements as being exciting. I think. <laughs> Well, it is. It's like you know, we got a, we had these characters called the Dog Soldiers, and they sort of the film was designed by Alan Lee, who uh, it was the first time uh, he never thought about doing films. Actually, he was a, a book illustrator um, who I knew and who, who I'd worked with, and uh, I said to him, he would be ideal to sort of do the uh, design for Eric the Viking. And of course, he he went on that from there to do Lord of the Rings, um, all, all three episodes. I mean, he, he, he so he's like now a kind of a top film designer um 
but he designed these uh, these mar- these this headgear for the, which are these huge long um, uh, skeletons uh, and heads um, for these dog soldiers on this boat and. Um, they never really looked terribly frightening. So what we've been doing is we've been putting growls on them, and now they suddenly look frightening. You know, they oh, yeah, really are scary. <laughs> um, one of the things that, you, that you've done a lot in the 30 years or so since uh, Python, or the 20 years, 25 years, I guess, since the last Python film, um, is children's entertainment. A lot of people, I think, get into children's entertainment when they have kids of their own. Was that the case for you? Yeah, I started writing um, books for, for kids um, when uh, my daughter was five. And uh, I thought, oh, great, I can read the fairy tales now. And I bought The Brothers Grimm for her. And I started reading, I think it was Snow White, actually. And, um, and you get to the end of this story. And in the original version, which I was reading, the wicked stepmother is punished by being made to put on red-hot iron slippers and dance until she falls down dead. I thought, I can't read this. My little daughter's ready to go to sleep thinking, oh, I'm so glad they tortured that old lady to death. Um, I thought, well, I can't read this sort of stuff. So I, I, the next day I sort of sat out and started writing my own fairy tales. Um, and then when, I had my, when my son arrived, then I, have to, I had to write something for him, so I wrote the saga of Eric the Viking. Um, so it's kind of kind of nice. But so the book of Eric the Viking was written for Bill, and in fact, I noticed I hadn't realised I'd forgotten that the film is actually dedicated to him. And so, and here he is, sort of like sixteen years later, he gets his chance to have his own say about the film. <laughs> um, oh, you've you've worked in this kind of fairy tale and uh, fantasy world a lot since um, in the past twenty years or so. I mean, you mentioned your book Fairy Tales, which actually. Um, I have to say, I'm 24, and my my mom used to read me from that book when I was when I was you know however old it is that your mom read you from that book five four or five. I was born the year the book came out, but you've you've worked very extensively in that field, and I mean I think to a certain extent you know everything that's connected with the with the myths of the Middle Ages is deeply connected to the to the world of fantasy. Um, what do you think is is appealing for you about that about that world? Well, I've always liked fantasy. I, I don't know why it is. It's just what that's how I am. I, I I've always enjoyed the, the world of the fantastic, or world at one remove from reality. Uh, maybe it was growing up in the forties, in because uh, I was born in nineteen forty-two. So my childhood was spent in the forties in England, when it was pretty rough. You know, there was nothing much in the shops, and uh, we were suffering from the after effects of the Second World War. And uh, it was pretty austere, in fact. And uh, maybe, maybe that was it. Maybe uh, it was easier to escape into the world of Rupert the Bear and uh, the world of animals and imaginary worlds than to live in the real world. And uh, certainly, I've always that's always been my, you know, I found it easier to understand an imaginary world than I than to understand the real world. One of the credits on your on your resume that, as I was uh, reading about you this past week, I, I didn't know was that you wrote um, the screenplay for the film Labyrinth, which was a, um, a, a Jim Henson film, a Jim Henson children's fantasy film from the from the mid nineteen eighties. Um, how did you How did you get involved in in that project? <laughs> it was very odd, actually. I was actually thinking about uh, doing a film of Eric the Viking at the time, and I. Suddenly, so well, I, I suppose you know somebody like Jim Henson would be the person to sort of get involved in doing the animal, the monsters and things. Um, so I got his number and I phoned up his uh, secretary, his assistant Jill, and she said, "Well, fine enough, he was trying to get hold of you because <laughs> he's got this thing labyrinth that he 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 was wondering whether you'd be interested in writing the screenplay for." 
So, um, so instead of him getting involved in Eric the Viking, uh, I got I got roped into labyrinths. <laughs> did you? Uh, what was it like working with him? Did you? Did you have? Um... Oh, he's a lovely man. He's um, he was uh, he was a really really nice, good man to work with, and uh, I was working with him and Brian Froud, um, who was a wonderful. Uh, uh, artist and uh, and who really most all the images in in dark crystal and and labyrinth they're really all out of Brian's head actually. Um, he did all the sort of the <laughs> concept design and how we worked on labyrinth was um, they'd all they were ready about six months or three months into production they'd got all these puppets and things but they didn't have a script or a story really and um, and uh, so I took a lot of Brian's drawings. And then wrote a screenplay, just sort of, you know, every time I came to a new scene, I'd just thumb through his drawings and see, oh, that's a nice character, I like him. There's an old man with a, 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 a hat which is a duck on the top, so the duck talks, so obviously he's having an argument with the duck all the time. <coughs> um, so it was, really, it was really quite fun, actually, to interact off uh, stuff that was already there like that. In a certain way, a lot of the stuff in, the, in your career, a lot, of the, a lot of the fiction has been interpretive, whether it's... Um, you know, it's it's re, you know it's reinterpreting um, Arthurian legend or you know the the kind of legends about Vikings for Eric the Viking or um, this kind of thing. Yeah, no, I suppose that's true. Really, I mean, again, it's this thing about working within a context that's recognisable. It's sort of uh, it's quite fun. I mean, the last thing I did was uh, Wind in the Willows again, which was an adaptation of a book. So, but it gives you a context to work within, and it, that's that's quite fun. I mean. Not, not that I don't want to make my own things. I'm actually sort of um, trying to get time to write a, finish writing a book that I'm in the middle of, <clears throat> which I think could make a, a good movie as well. So I'm, I'm dying to get back to that, really. What's the nature of the new book? Um, it's called Evil Machines, and uh, it's, um, it's uh, about... Uh, well, that's what it's about, really. So at the moment, it's a, a, a book of short stories, um, but they all turn... Towards the end, you realize they're all connected. Um, of course, the film won't be like that at all. It'll have to take the the, the end story, really. Um, but it's quite fun. It's a world in which you know people and machines all talk to each other all the time, and uh, and the machines are always under, undermining the human beings. Well, uh, Terry, I know you have to uh, get back to your son and get back to your work there. Very good. It, it was a it was a real pleasure having you on the show. Well, it was it was very nice to talk to you, Jesse, and uh, all the best. <laughs>